Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jillie Smith, the podcast in which we dig a little deeper through the pages of the latest food books. And while I pay off my carbon footprint by giving up flying, you can come with me to the far corners of the earth through some fine conversation. Today we're in Tibet with Yishi Jamba and Julie Kleeman, the husband and wife team who brought the Himalayas to Britain through their restaurant, food stall and now book, Taste Tibet. Um, And most of these stories are are tales they've never come across before, even ideas. I mean, we there's so much that could be said about how people eat and in different parts of Tibet as well, not just the region that Yiji is from. There's so much that we can also take on board in our own lives. It's a place I've never been to, and I began by asking Yishi about a country that feels like another universe. Uh, yeah, nobody knows. So that's what we're doing. doing. And, uh, and also, the, you know, uh, rest people went to, to, to Tibet and then realized also the on the food reputation is not that great. Julie, you studied Chinese at Cambridge University and you've been traveling all around that area of Asia since 1992. What does Tibet look like for you? Just describe it politically, culturally. It's the highest point on earth, isn't it? It is. So Tibet and Nepal share Mount Everest, which is the highest point on Earth. But actually, end to end, Tibet is really different, one one part of, of the region to another. And so it's really difficult to paint a picture of Tibet per se. And I think the, the first thing to say is that Tibet is much larger than you would imagine. And perhaps because people know so little about Tibet, in most people's imaginations, it's a, a, a quite a small region, maybe comparable to Nepal. But in fact, if you take Tibet out of the map of China, you've got, China shrinks quite considerably, which tells you something about why um, it's such an important part of China. Um, not to mention the fact that it also provides much of the natural resources that China needs. So you've got in Tibet the source of the five main rivers that feed into um, Burma, India, many countries in the region, including China. And so it's a really um, critical area. But that, you know, also gives you a kind of perhaps paints a picture of somewhere that is more um, arable, given, given that it is the fountainhead of so many important rivers than many parts of the region actually are, because you're talking about yeah parts of this country that are so inaccessible that people who inhabit those parts, and there's not going to be many of them, um, find that in terms of food, there's really not very much variety yeah. at all because very little grows there. Yishi, you grew up in this very rural environment. I mean, literally kind of herding animals and, and farming. Tell us a little bit about your childhood in Tibet. Uh, my childhood, yeah, we our grow up very small village. And we don't have much, we don't have a shop and just like, you know, food is so important for us to, you know, feed the family and everything's just fresh and very, very authentic. And, uh, yeah, just when I was a little, probably for nine, ten, probably I make some breads. Uh, I remember that clearly and I'm somewhere else I'm so lucky we don't have many uh cars and lots of animals around in the house and uh, so me and my dad summer we go on the mountains 
look after the ox and the sheep and uh, and this autumn tends we come home and we stay the six month in home uh, with my moms and other brothers sisters yeah just really someone I'm so lucky I mean climate change is already changing Tibet isn't it um, we know that uh, it's changing the, the weather pattern so it's driving animals into the towns the animals are eating the crops and people are now being driven to buy their food from the nearest shops which means traveling somewhat so life is changing quite considerably in Tibet now already isn't it climate change is so fast we have litter we have lots of snows uh, but it's changed a lot uh, but still, we we are farming, so so we yeah, land we use a lot of the rivers to the land, and uh, yeah, land is so rich, and uh, we have lots of fruits, and uh, so many vegetables. So we are from very different to the other part of Tibet. Yeah, that that ability to feed yourself is terribly important to the culture, isn't it? Now you two met on the road. Yishi, you'd already left Tibet, and Julie, you were travelling, and and you met in India, didn't you? Tell us about that meeting. So by that time, Yishi had already been living in many different parts of India for about a decade. Uh, I think it took him many years to get used to the different climate, food, way of life, language, meant so many things. But by that, by the time that we met, he'd already been there about 10 years and he'd been um, living down south um, in Goa. And we met in Dharamsala, which is in the foothills of the Himalayas. So when Yuji first arrived in India, that was more or less his first stop. But I think that was your first stop. Yeah. Um, and... It was a chance meeting at the side of the road. So I was there in early November and it was really quite cold. And these, they, she calls them snow monkeys, um, that normally inhabit higher reaches of the mountains, come down at that time of year when it gets too cold. And they're quite impressive looking. They're not those red-bummed monkeys that you you see <laughs> around the rest of India, but quite kind of grand grey monkeys with white beards and long white tails and I was taking pictures and so was Yishi so I always remember that the first thing that I I said to him because he knew that these monkeys were actually quite shy and not dangerous and went a lot closer to get his shots was was that's a good idea (laughs) (laughs) so we got chatting about the monkeys and we walked up the road together and and had a cup of tea and then later that evening Yishi cooked me um, our first meal, my first real Tibetan meal. I mean, I had travelled to Tibetan parts of China and eaten Tibetan food. It's not always easy as a tourist to get real, authentic Tibetan food. So, yeah. sadly, a lot of people come away with the, an impression of Tibetan food that doesn't do it justice. And this is, in fact, your first food moment. Do tell us, the beef tentuk, is that how you pronounce it? Beef hand uh, noodles? Beef tentuk? Uh, this dish, uh, like in the cold place, is very warming. And just, you know, as uh, very delicious bread. And uh, so, yeah, with the noodles and the vegetables and some beef. Yeah, it's, a, it's a delicious. So Yishi always says that in Tibet noodles, soup noodles are eaten in the evening time because they're perceived to be light but warming so even in the middle of winter in the daytime it's actually quite warm in Tibet I'm always amazed to see the videos from 
Yeji's home of people dancing during the New Year time when it, it's, you know, you would imagine it would be very cold, but in fact, everybody's in shirt sleeves because you're so you're at such high altitude, you've got that proximity to the sun and, and you're actually warm. But as soon as nighttime comes, the sun has dropped away. It's, it's really perishingly cold, especially if you're outdoors. And so you really need this kind of food, not just to warm your belly, but also your hands. It's something that, that you hold and bring close to your face. It's a very kind of um, immersive experience. And, and as I described, the first night that we met was cold. In, in India, and she just kind of, it appeared to me, produced this meal from nowhere, and certainly in a setup that was really not conducive to, to producing something delicious at all. <laughs> so simple, um, so sparse, with, with such kind of little equipment, and, and so the whole experience was, was really amazing for me. It wasn't just the food, which, which was delicious, um, but just the fact that he could produce this from such a simple setup, and meeting your life partner on the the Himalayan mountain path—how extraordinarily romantic for a Tuesday morning! I, I think, you know, sadly, we always we lose sight of, of that <laughs> in our day-to-day lives. But of course, it's a great story. <laughs> so, to fast forward, you got married. You've now got two children. You live together in Oxford. But tell us about going back to meet his family. I mean, as a tourist and as a scholar, you'd been travelling around Asia for some time. But it's actually when you go into the heart of a a country to meet somebody's family when you're actually welcomed in. That's when you experience it in quite a different way. What was that like? Yishi, what was it like taking Julie back to your family? Um, Yeah, first of all, kind of a nervous buzz. Then just... I'm sure for them shocked as well, but for me as well, I kind of shocked. And it just I have two children and a wife, and it just first day is kind of strange. But then language is little bit issue, but yeah, we can talk through the food. I think Julie really enjoyed. I think with my family. Julie, what was it like for you? I mean, as you mentioned, I'd been travelling in Asia for many years, so it wasn't there wasn't much about meeting Yishi's family that was a big shock. Although I have to say that the moment of meeting them, he didn't mention he hadn't seen them for seventeen years, and for a large part of those seventeen years, they hadn't even had so much as a phone call. I mean, when Skype became possible and he could go to um, internet cafes in India, it it became possible to make calls through to his home but you know they hadn't had that much contact in recent years there's been a lot more they can talk face to face through through various apps Um, but I don't think anything could have prepared us for the actual moment of meeting and I think that we we didn't really dare believe um, that it was going to happen and so it did feel like quite a shock when it finally did and I, I mean I personally and this wasn't my reunion I, I don't think I've ever had a moment like that in my life. I just couldn't breathe. I just, you know, the, it, it was really, there aren't words for it. I don't think I've ever successfully found the words for it. But as, as Yishi said, from, from the following day, I think once everybody had got used to the idea that this was real, it was happening. And also, I think for Yishi, it had been, because he hadn't seen his family for 17 years and he hadn't really seen many photographs either, it was quite a shock especially the elder people in his family, had aged quite a lot. Um, Many of them had lost their teeth. Their faces had become quite sunken. It was just, you know, they they were old people now. 
And I, and once he had got over that shock, and we, as a as a family, had allowed ourselves to believe that this reunion was really happening, then we were able to enjoy together, even where, for me and the kids, kids there was a language issue, but we immediately got stuck into day to day tasks that really did center around food, and I think that that's that's normal day to day business um, in your home, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it, you know, the conversation starts in the morning about what we're going to have for lunch and what we're going to have for dinner. And, and mealtimes usually involve a fair amount of preparation, sometimes um, going out to the fields um, to pick the vegetables and, um, and everybody participating in that as an activity. So I was, I was able to get stuck in and, uh, and work together alongside Yishi's family members, even though we lacked a common spoken language. A lot of people who grow up in one country and then uh, emigrate to another will often take their food language with them. They will express themselves through the food from home that perhaps they hadn't even noticed when they were growing up so much. Was that your story, Yishi? Do you think that what you've created with Taste Tibet, your restaurant in, uh, in Oxford and your book, do you think that you are now trying to sort of I don't know, bring the two parts of yourself together somehow through food. Uh, yeah, definitely. That's our feeling. Isn't it? Through the food and the shared my culture, all that comes from the food. It's just food is like a really big subject. It's just big, big subject, really. And just yeah. like, you know, uh, I can, when you're cooking, like I just remember when I was a very young age and cook on the mountains on a fire, and it's still in home, just we can cook on the fire. And now I cook on a gas. And just, yeah, it's just it's fun, really, really fascinating. And also, like, you know, which kind of equipment I need, you know. And also, sometimes, this moment, I have a restaurant in, like, gas burners. Uh, I made design for myself, and I sent to the factory to make for me. And... Very satisfied. Still, like I feel like going on the mountains on a fire. Just it's, it's really, really nice feeling. And uh, so I, I created like you know from my rural place food and to model place big city and just so we can get everything here. So it's just really for me. It's kind of easy way. And that leads us quite nicely onto your second food moment: the muli and yogurt salad. It, it reminds you of your mother. And the and the vegetables that you would store, you would take from the mountains and store them. Can you get the same kind of vegetables here? Are they the same? Um, I would love to get like a more muddy uh, vegetables, <laughs> but you know, here everything's fresh and uh, just like in the plastic and just yes. that's a little bit bad. Anyway, I can get like yeah. Lots of vegetable I can get it here. Julie, do you want to take us through the the muli and yogurt salad as a as a, what is it? So to me, I mean, I subsequently discovered that you know putting yogurt in salad isn't such an outlandish idea, um, but um, it's not something a taste that I was used to. This is is such a simple salad. It's dressed with a little bit of Sichuan peppercorn, which Yishi always likes to tell me is really from Tibet rather than than Sichuan. The, <laughs> The province in China. I'm sure you get it in Sichuan as well, but we brought back from previous visits huge bags of, of this stuff that, that come from um, your dad's hometown, I think, isn't it? My home as well. Your yeah. home as well. Yeah. Very kind of fragrant. It's a, it's a, 
it's Tongue, yeah, it's a kind of tongue tingling um, taste, and and that's kind of sprinkled on at the at the end. But you've basically got um, shredded muli, and muli, if people are not very familiar with that as a vegetable, is a bit like a a giant carrot, a giant white carrot with the texture of of carrot. It's got that crispness, and in Tibet, it's very often, um, more often, used in soups and stews alongside other root vegetables potatoes sometimes turnips Um, it's a real staple for winter time because you're able to harvest it in the autumn and then store it in in caves that Yishi's family dig them out in the mountainside behind the house so in the late autumn these vegetables will be harvested and then they'll be placed inside caves and which are kind of um, sealed with mud but um, they're accessible any time you need to go need some vegetables for your dinner is otherwise in winter time there's, there's not much going on, given that there's no shops. It's not like you can nip out for this or that. You just go to your cave. And you'll, <laughs> you'll uh, yeah, you'll, you'll pick out some muli and add it to your your stew. For, but but this particular dish is usually eaten in early springtime because that's when um, you yogurt is in fastest supply. Do you communicate these stories to your customers at your restaurant um, and the food stall that you've been running since? 2014 mm. Yishi at, uh, at festivals do you, do you people ask and do you tell them um, yeah you, yeah I do first you know beginning of my business I just talk with them customers but yeah customers some customers like just you know, kind of my friend as well just I'm doing food for more than eight years so yeah just and but- same customers are still you know same the other thing that we've been doing since 2016 is is uh, writing a weekly blog, which we send out to our, our newsletter subscribers as well. Um, and we try through that weekly blog to communicate a lot of these stories um, behind the dishes that we serve at our stall in our restaurant. Um, and, pe- and we find people really engage with that. Um, and most of these stories are... Um, are tales they've never come across before, even ideas. I mean, we there's so much that could be said about how people eat and in different parts of Tibet as well, not just the region that Yiji is from. There's so much that we can also take on board um, in our own lives, quite novel ideas. Yeah, we learn so much about people through through their food and their food culture. Probably the most popular of your dishes that you serve at the food stall and at the restaurant are, are the momos aren't they they are sort of known as uh, tibet's unofficial national dish tell us about the heavenly vegan momos that you've chosen for your third food moment yeah i remember when i was young you know my mom's just bringing back choice very fresh and the very crunch everything by hand not for the knife or anything she washed with that and crunch it and put a little bit of salt, and then after she squashed a little bit back, and then she used a little bit of yak cheese, and then, yeah, she makes the mummers. So that's what I really remember so in my mind. Still, I just remember so clear. And that's why I just put on the menu, and then people still not, yeah, exactly my mom's, not use the cheese, but that was the same, like my, my mom's recipe. What do you use instead of the cheese for the vegan momos? Vegan momos, no. Yeah, we use the, we use um, spinach and sweetheart cabbage, pointed cabbage, and um, and Chinese chives. 
which which have a, a kind of sit somewhere between garlic and onion in taste. They're a really crucial yeah. ingredient. Your fourth food moment takes us more into the sort of the Himalayan cultural practices um, that we might associate Tibet with. I mean, I, I always think of Tibet with a Buddhist culture, obviously, um, and and lots of rituals. And your fourth food moment are the are the biscuits and the cakes, the ceremonial biscuits. Um, kabzi, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, it's a kabzi. Yeah, it's a kabzi. It's a, exactly. And uh, that's the yeah we make like you know New Year's and also special days we make sweet and uh, and a snack. It's so easy to carry with us and uh, just you know it's just amazing. I think an interesting point to note is that generally speaking in Tibet people don't really eat sweet treats. It's really not part of the cuisine, but. At New Year time, people go to town with these biscuits. I mean, it's an opportunity for them to indulge their um, artistic flair because these are biscuits that are shaped. Obviously, there's no such thing as biscuit cutters in Tibet and um, very intricately shaped by hand into all kinds of different designs. I mean, they can be made very, very simply and there are kind of, you know, small pieces that are chucked into the pan. They're deep fried um, but they can also be be shaped. And for example, the first one that is made at the Lunar New Year will be made in the shape of a scorpion, and that's to ward off bad any kind of mishaps in the kitchen, which um, are entirely possible when you're dealing with large pans of um, hot oil. <laughs> so you'll hang that above the stove, a scorpion-shaped um, kabzi, and then. You cr- people create also a an altar display of these biscuits, again, shaped in different auspicious shapes um, as an offering. And so there's a lot of kind of meaning behind them, but also a lot of, of fun and games that goes into it as well. And the idea is, as Yishi said, you could always still eat a full meal, no matter how many of these you've eaten. The idea is that you've got and there are literal sack loads of them around the kitchen at the time of New Year. And, and sometimes these biscuits last right through until until summer because they're just made in such vast quantities. The idea is that as guests come by, um, which is the tradition at New Year, there'll always be something to offer at the table with, with tea or with something stronger. They're delicious when dipped in butter tea or sweet tea. So they serve so many purposes. You opened your, I mean, it feels like a huge journey from that wonderful image that you've just painted between the two of you to Oxford, residential Oxford, Mm. um, where you opened your restaurant in November 2020, (laughs) mid-pandemic. Are you crazy? (laughs) What happened? It it wasn't as mad an idea as it sounds. I mean, we had been doing street food and so takeaway food since 2014. And you mentioned that it's residential Oxford, although for many years we had a stall in Oxford's central market by the bus station. So we would feed lots of um, students and office workers. We also also used to run pop ups um, and and one in particular around the corner from our house and around the, the corner again from where we've opened our restaurant now. And in fact, in the very, very early days of Taste Tibet, we used to run a takeaway from our home. So when our kids were, you know, literally bum shuffling down the corridor to, to greet people at the door, we would have um, neighbours, friends come round on a, I think it was Thursday evening, they would, they would 
place their order. That's where the blog first, the newsletter first started, as you know, with an introduction to to this week's menu. We sent it out by by email with a little explanation of what we were cooking up for the week, and um, yeah, people would pre-order and come and, and pick up their food for takeaway on a Thursday evening. So. Many of the people in the immediate area in which we've opened our restaurant have been um, visiting us in one capacity or another since, well, for the last seven or eight years. And so it, it wasn't as mad an idea as it sounds. You know, everybody at that stage, obviously, we were only able to serve takeaway food, but but the people in our community knew our food as takeaway food. There was no reimagining of the menu. Um, and obviously, they were also really, really... Um, keen to support us you know I think that there was a, a lot of goodwill at that time and anybody who was crazy enough to to stay open or to open <laughs> a place in, in such uh, circumstances deserved medals <laughs> and um, people really came out for us I mean the first night our opening night I don't know what we were thinking we opened on a Friday night you know there was no soft launch <laughs> at all and we had literally queues that went around the block I mean you know I think we had an inkling it might happen but we could never have imagined it would have been that mental yeah it's it's very shocked and people really uh, take so seriously well first we thought we want to open slowly and then we want to just you know uh, in the kitchen also like a small team we want to like slowly slowly we want to build up the uh, restaurant, but then just first night, and just I don't know how they know it, and just queues just miles away, and uh, yeah, it's just uh, amazing. It's amazing. Fantastic. There are only thousand Tibetans in the UK, yet Tibetan food, through you largely, um, has kind of added to that wonderful banquet of of food from other countries, food from other cultures, which is really uh, it, it so enriches British food culture doesn't it? Yushi, you must be so proud to bring the food from your mountains to British food, which you do admit was a bit lacking when you first came here, so much so that you actually started growing your your own food and your own allotment because you had to feed yourself properly. Uh How does it feel now? Yeah, that's that's the beginning study, you know. We first come here and then we just, you know, we we rented the co-op and just, you know, all the vegetables. And then we just uh, got some element and we got lots of vegetables. Then I thought, you know, well, I can do the food, you know. That's how I got the idea, you know, I can do the food. What does your mum think about Taste Tibet? Uh, uh, really impressed, you know. But, you know, in, in Tibet, there is no such thing as a cookbook. And so even though, I mean, we, we had planned a big visit to Tibet and we had been hoping to go for two, three months, just at the point at which the pandemic hit. Um, this might have been quite a, a different, more immersive cookbook if we'd been able to make that trip, but unfortunately it didn't happen. So in place of that, we sent a, a Chinese friend to Yiji's home to take photographs of, of his family to help the book along. And I think that although they understood in principle uh, why she was there and where these photos would end up, in reality, they don't really have a point of reference. And so we often, I mean, we actually, we haven't got a copy of the book yet ourselves. <laughs> I have. Not yet. <laughs> but, you know, it'll be surreal enough for us when it lands in our hands. And But we often say to each other, we can't really imagine what they're going to make of it when it lands in theirs. I mean, for them, this is really just, you know, 
the food that they cook day to day, um, it's nothing special and they don't perceive their lives as, as anything that interesting. And uh, we think that they'll probably find it hilarious. <laughs> More than anything. Obviously, there's pride. But again, you know, they don't really have many points of reference for Yiji's life, our lives here in the UK, full stop. So, you know, they can only understand it to one level, really. Yeah, they're, they're fascinated. They're asking, how is the food? That's asking on the... How is food in the UK? Yeah. How's the food in the UK? And I say, you know, I say, good. So, Yishi, just to finish, imagine that cookbook arriving at your mother's house. It's sitting on a little table. There's tea and those cabsy biscuits all around. What's she going to say? Uh, I think, yeah, first, yeah, probably she's a little bit uh, shocked. And, you know, I'm sure she's proud. You know, she, she never said about it. She, she's very proud. Thanks for listening. You can also find me on Food FM, the online radio station and global podcast platform, which aims to change the world through food. Please get in touch on social media. I'm at Cooking the Books with Jilly Smith on Instagram and at Jilly Smith on Twitter. And you can sign up for my newsletter at JillySmith.com. And I'll be back next week with Kalpna Wolf, whose book Eat, Share, Love celebrates the 91 different languages spoken in her hometown of Bristol through food.